This is a special Walker Cup episode from the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. The finest amateurs from Great Britain, Ireland, and the United States will face each other on May 8th and 9th at one of the most iconic golf clubs in the world. We know the teams, but a certain mystique surrounds the venue, Seminole Golf Club. In the next few weeks, you'll hear stories from Seminole members, former Walker Cup captains, USGA officials, and other special guests. These are the Seminole Sessions, a preview to the 2021 Walker Cup match. And now, your host, Ben Adelberg. Good morning and welcome back to the final installment of the Seminole Sessions here at the back of the range. I'm your host, Ben Adelberg, and before heading to Seminole, I wanted to leave you with one final episode to get yourselves ready for the Walker Cup. So, yeah, I can't remember if I mentioned it or not, but I will be in attendance covering the Walker Cup at Seminole. It's been a bit of a blur lately, so my apologies there. But you know the drill. When I'm on site at a tournament or championship, make sure you are following along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of that information can be found at thebackoftherange.com. You'll see pictures, videos, and interviews from my entire time spent on property. You'll be able to follow the action on Golf Channel and streaming on Peacock, so there's going to be several ways you can experience the Walker Cup, and I hope that you'll peek in on my channels every once in a while as well. For the broadcast schedule, go to usga.org. My guest on this final installment of the Seminole Sessions is Andrew Bigadike. Andrew is a former three-time All-American and 2002 national champion during his time at Guilford College. No, that's not a D1 school. That's a D3 program. And you know it's a common thread on this podcast to discuss collegiate golf and, more importantly, how juniors find the right fit for them. So we got into that quite extensively. Andrew also has experience playing in the UK. He's a three-time winner of the Carnegie Shield. It's a fantastic match play tournament held at Royal Dornock. He's played in USGA championships, and he's also played at the highest levels of mid-amateur golf. His Twitter handle, and I'm not kidding, is midam. Seriously, look it up. That's just next-level marketing. That's brilliant. Andrew doesn't just play, but he's also served the game on the rules side. He spent time on rules committees for the Northern California Golf Association, the USGA, and he'll be at Seminole for the Walker Cup and will serve on their rules committee. Did I mention that he's a new member at Seminole? Well, he is. So we got into match play rule scenarios that you might see during the Walker Cup. We also talked about what it's like to actually be a new member at Seminole. And in his first year, well, he's made a bit of a splash. You see, Andrew Bigadike is the reigning club champion at Seminole Golf Club. Andrew, you've been following this podcast since day one. Greatly appreciate your support and thrilled to finally have you as a guest here at the back of the range. How are you? I'm great, Ben. Thanks for having me. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Uh, I love what you're doing with the podcast and what you're doing for amateur golf. And uh, I, I definitely classify myself as more of a listener, oh. uh, not someone who should be on your podcast. But, oh. uh, Look forward to talking some golf. Absolutely. Well, we'll we'll, we'll clear up that uh, uh, misnomer real quick. With uh, we'll talk about some of your highlights in the amateur game, and actually what you're doing in amateur golf. I'm a big fan of what you're doing, not only with, uh, you know, being a rules official for uh, for the USGA North Car- Northern California, 
And um, gosh, everything you're doing with the Amateur Golf Alliance, there's a lot to get to. But since it is Walker Cup week, we are going to tailor our discussion a little bit towards Seminole, a little bit towards Walker Cup. But um, let's give a good baseline to the listeners so they know who exactly uh, I'm talking to right now. Give me an idea, give my listeners an idea how you got into the game of golf and uh, how it kind of took shape in your life. Yeah, so I I was born in Virginia. Uh, My dad was a professor at UVA and got into the game, uh, you know, just tagging along with him, hitting balls, uh, going out on the course when he was playing. Uh, But really my first memories of playing are after we moved to New Jersey. So my dad joined Ridgewood Country Club, a great old Tillinghast course in northern New Jersey. And um, when I was, I guess, six years old, uh, at the time you had to be eight years old to be a junior golfer there. Uh, and he took me for a lesson with the head pro and, uh, the head pro said to me at the end of the lesson, he said, how old are you? And I said, I'm six. And he said, for the next two years, anytime anyone asks you that question, tell them you're eight years old. Perfect. Uh, so it gave me a good opportunity to, to kind of get a head start and play. And, you know, my dad loved the game and I, I just had a lot of special experiences with him. He got me kind of playing tournament golf, uh, pretty young age. And my dad was English and, uh, we would go back to England to visit his family every summer. So I got exposed uh, to golf in the UK at a pretty young age. Uh, I think it's part of why the Walker Cup and international team competitions are really so special to me. Um, But yeah, my dad uh, asked a friend at one point, you know, where can we go after we visit, you know, his dad uh, that'll have great golf and great beaches. And his his friend told him he needed to go to Dornoch in the north of Scotland. Uh And so I think when I was about six or eight, my family made our first trip there and my parents just fell in love with it. And it became a place that we would travel to pretty regularly on those trips after seeing my, my dad's family. And, uh, so growing up as a kid, I didn't, you know, obviously being a little kid, I didn't realize I was getting exposed to some great golf at Ridgewood and at Royal Dornock and, um, getting exposed to golf in the U S and in the UK and, uh, just kept, uh, kept playing really fell in love with it. And, really just saw it as a way to hang out, hang out with my dad. who was, you know, just a great guy. I love the fact that you are now a, you're a USG rules official, you know, on the U S junior committee. And the beginning of your golf endeavor was to lie about your age. I mean, I just think that that's, that's, I mean, <laughs> this is this, I mean, you're, you're a beacon of honesty in the rules of the game of the traditions. And your first start is take hey, kid. Don't let, don't tell them how old you are. I mean, I just, I, but no, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, it sounds like you had an yeah. incredible upbringing in the game and not just, you know, playing with your dad and then also going over to, to England, Scotland, you know, playing doorknock. I mean, well, I mean, hell let's, let's just dip into it right now. You're a three-time winner of the Carnegie shield, which is this fantastic match play event. Uh, you know, obviously stroke and then into match play event over, um, over at doorknock. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the intricacies of match play because, as, you know, we just mentioned, it's, it's Walker Cup week and, and it's all match play. But is there something that has drawn you to, to match play over metal play or how you've had success? I mean, a lot of the people listening to this, uh, you know, episode, they're going to see match play front and center at the Walker Cup. Maybe they play a little bit of match play in their, at their home club or in different tournaments. But, you know, what is it about match play that, that excites you? Oh, maybe over metal play or just on its own? Yeah, for me, match play, it's, I mean, it's sort of 18 contests rather than, you know, one one contest. You know, you're trying to win every hole and uh, it really puts it to you from the first hole. You know, you have a putt to go one up uh, or, or stay 
even or whatever it may be. Uh, and it matters a lot more, you know, in stroke play, you kind of have this long-term view of your, you know, couple hour round, uh, trying to get the best score and, you know, you, there's going to be ups and downs. And I think in match play, um, you're really trying to respond to what your opponent's doing. It has, uh, I think a bigger impact mentally in terms of, uh, what it's asking, uh, you to do and to respond and to handle situations, whether it's, you know, responding to a lot of birdies or, or trying to make a comeback, uh, whatever it may be. I just think it adds that additional element that, uh, uh, makes it more exciting kind of throughout the round. Sure. You, um, so you play your, now, I guess before we talk about where you played collegiately, I know you played at, at Guilford college, you were, you were a Quaker in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, <laughs> That's right. uh, did you see many differences in maybe how kids got into the game or how they're, they matured into the game between, you know, the States and, and overseas? Yeah, I, I, I'd say that, um, kind of my observations in terms of how the game is played differently were more later when I would go for the shield, uh, the Carnegie shield when I got into college, but seeing how kids were brought into the game in the UK, it definitely seemed uh, at least in the circles that I was in, in the U S a much more serious uh, kind of regimented endeavor. People were yeah. a lot more focused on, uh, you know, the results and parents were a lot more focused on, you know, how can we get, you know, our kids position to get scholarships and those sorts of things. And I think in the UK, it's just more of a game that everyone plays. Uh, and it's, you know, more of seen as, as an activity that's fun. And, you know, those who excel, you know, they get into some of the national programs and really are given a lot of support. And I'm sure a lot of guys that are on the GBNI team will have, uh, or all of them probably have been, you know, on their national teams for each of the, the home countries over there. So, um, yeah, I do. I do think it's uh, a little bit more uh, an, an accessible game in the UK, and something that a lot more people are, are familiar with. And uh, uh, in that sense, how did how did Guildford become uh, get on your radar as far as you know playing collegiately and obviously for academics? I mean, you're you're a software engineer. You uh, you know clearly uh, you know tremendously su successful in your your uh, you know business and professional career. How did Guildford set you up for that and how did that become the kind of the location that you wanted to go and, and study and play collegiate golf? I think, yeah, I think like a lot of folks growing up in the Northeast, uh, you know, the one thing as a golfer is it's tough to get, get enough preparation in the wintertime with the weather. So I was looking to go South um, and you know, I was looking at various schools and um, actually my dad took me to Clemson and I, I, uh, uh, had a meeting with Larry Penley and I, at the level of player I was, I had no business, uh, going to Clemson, but, <laughs> Larry Penley, uh, a legend. yeah, I mean, in the nicest, uh, possible way, he explained to me kind of that I looked like a, a good player up and coming, getting better, uh, and what, you know, but what they look for, for playing on their team and that he, you know, wanted to do everything he could to help me find the right school for me. He wasn't sure that Clemson was right. Uh, and he gave my, my dad the names of a bunch of schools and one of them was Guilford. Uh, and my dad reached out to the coach there and, and we went to visit and, you know, coach Jensen was a great golf coach, great man. And, um, you know, he, he was really one of the coaches that made it clear that, you know, he was interested in me coming to that school and he thought that I could help the program and, you know, made a point of saying that I, you know, if I came there, I could play and play a lot, um, and, you know, for me, that's kind of how I ended up 
going to Guilford is, you know, really feeling like it was a place where I would be able to play and compete and, and learn to get better. And it was a perfect fit for me in that sense. I see a lot of, a lot of the junior golfers I, I talk to, they, you know, they want to go to the, the D one school, get the cool logo on their yeah. bag. And, um, a lot of them end up, you know, a lot of my friends ended up going places where they weren't able to play and, you know, they kind of lost interest with the game. And I'm just, I'm actually really thankful, Larry Penley. Anytime I meet someone who went to Clemson, I say, Hey, if you, if you know, coach Penley, please, you know, tell him, I said, thank you. Because he sent me in a direction where it gave me a chance to, to really, uh, compete and play and get better, you know, uh, at my own pace. And, uh, you know, I feel like that really helped me. I, I'm really glad that you mentioned that, uh, about, you know, not just your specific example about Larry Penley at Clemson, but just the, the great example of not only understanding where your fit's going to be, but how great it is that a D1 coach, instead of saying, nope, you're not for me, you're not going to be, you're not, you're not going to play Clemson. Thanks anyway. But instead of him dismissing you as an option, he says, well, let me help this kid. Let me maybe, you know, pave the way and, and point him in the right direction. Um, yeah, I just saw Larry Penley uh, at Valspar, and he just picked up, I believe, his 80th win. I mean, just an unreal uh, career at Clemson. So, uh, yeah, and and you had a like you said, you had a great. Uh, it was a great fit for you at Guilford. I mean, three time, uh, you know, D three All American. You lead that school to a championship in 2002, and it's it's absolutely the perfect fit for you. And Man, I don't even think we need to hit on any any further. It's something that we've talked about many times here at the back of the range. Find a place where you can play. Find a place where you get along with a coach where you have the opportunity to compete. And it sounds to me that you would not have changed anything about your collegiate career. No, I agree with that completely. I think, you know, for me, getting to play in those national championships, I mean, when you're playing for a national championship, yeah. and you wake up in the morning and you feel excited and nervous, uh, it doesn't matter if it's a D3 or D2 or right. D1. It's, yeah. it's, the, it's the biggest deal in the world to you. Uh, and, you know, part of golf and, and part of competing is, you know, experiencing that and, and seeing and learning how you can play your best in those situations. And, um, you know, I think my golf coach at Guilford, Coach Jensen, he was great. He'd wake up those mornings uh, and they'd have the leaders go off after lunch and, you know, we'd all be pacing around nervous as hell. And, <laughs> you know, he'd just say, I love days like this. Yeah. I just am so excited and I'm full of butterflies because of the opportunity. And he just, all he would talk about is the opportunity we have and really get us focusing on, you know, positive outcomes and positive thoughts when it's so easy to go the other way. So um, to have those experiences, uh, you know, I wouldn't have had them if I had played at a school kind of outside my ability at the time. And um, I think it really helped drive me to, kind of embrace competitiveness and, and, you know, those butterflies that coach Jensen talked about, as well as gaining some experience that helped me later down the line when I would get into situations where you're, you know, you're feeling uncomfortable, but you're focusing on the opportunity and not on, you know, the, the potential, you know, negative outcomes. Sure. I had, uh, so I had Jason Gore on the podcast um, and, and we started talking about Walker cup and he's like, well, I, I have my Walker cup back from, from 99 and it's still intact with like the head covers. And there's probably a top flight strata rolling around at the bottom somewhere. So don't let me down. Where is your Guilford college golf bag? It's in my garage in my house. In yes, New Jersey. <laughs> love it. I love it. I already, I knew the answer would not be, I don't know where it is. I have no clue. I knew you'd still have it. Yeah. And I mean, to be honest, uh, I just, you know, I just moved from California to New Jersey this fall back home and, you know, packing. My wife said, okay, you know, we're going to get rid of lots of stuff and a number of <laughs> Guilford shirts. And I was taking pictures, sending them to college teammates, you know, and I said, hey, do you still have yours? They're sending me pictures of theirs. I mean, you know, that those are memories, right? And so every time you go pack and, and 
you know, shuffle your clothes around. And it just brings back great memories from, you know, these great times with your teammates and, you know, competing and, and, and all of that. It's, uh, you know, it's just a great, great thing. You don't want to forget. So you keep that stuff. My St. Thomas University college golf bag that uh, started out blue and now is kind of a faded aqua of some <laughs> sorts uh, is still uh, still with me, uh, uh, you know, in my uh, in my house. And uh, have to congratulate my former college golf coach, David Pizzino, just won the Big East conference Big East Conference for UConn. So, got to give him a shout out. Um, well, so Coach Pizzino, Coach Pizzino actually growing up worked at Ridgewood Country Club. Yes, he and did. I got to know him, and um, I ran into him at the U.S. Junior at the Honors Course. Uh, no, I'm sorry, at uh, Flint Hills a couple of years ago, and he had no business recognizing me. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, damned if he didn't recognize me right away and come over, and we started telling Dave Fagerstrom stories, our caddy master back in the day, and you know. Uh, Bill Adams stories that pro back and I mean, it's just really neat to see him and, and it's amazing the connections in golf and, you know, the relationships you build and, you know, it's been great to see what he's done there. He's a great guy. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh this is kind of an interesting uh, episode already because not only are you a, a listener of this podcast, but you're so well connected in the, in the golf space. Huh. We, we may not talk about you very much. We're going to try to, okay. but I mean, we're, we're just getting all these different stories of, you know, uh, Penley and Pizzino and, and just all over the place. But, um, I wanted to, so, I mean, it is Walker cup week and I wanted to touch on what you're going to be doing there at the Walker cup at Seminole and your knowledge of Seminole. And so I, I absolutely have to share this story. So I'm at the Jones cup and you know, I get the phone call from you and we're talking and you're like, Ben, uh, you're never going to believe this, but I'm a member at Seminole now. And this is, you had quite a first year as a member. So before we talk about what you've done already in your first year as a member at Seminole, um, tell me how you spent your first month of your membership. Just, I mean, this is, this is a dream. You got, you got to share this story. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, first of all, I still can't even believe that I'm a member at Seminole. I mean, just, just an unbelievable, very fortunate, uh, you know, for me and you know, just a wonderful club and, and wonderful group of people. Uh, and so, you know, coming into the season, I just wanted to do everything I could to spend as much time there and really experience it and, and take advantage of it before they realize they should kick me out or something. <laughs> but nice. um, I, uh, <clears throat> I've i been at my company uh, for 16 years. I work at a software company. And I guess everyone knows the tech companies uh, a little bit uh I don't know, uh, favorable with their, some of their benefits and the way they treat employees. And sure. so, you know, reaching my 16 year mark at my company, uh, one of the things they do is they just give you a month off. Um, and so, you know, we're in the kind of heat of some transitions, uh, with, you know, people last fall when this came about and, you know, I said to my manager, you know, I'd really, uh, I think it's better for the team if I wait until the winter to take, uh, take my month away from work and, oh, thanks, Andrew. You know, it's really nice of you to do that. <laughs> uh, and I don't know. I don't know if you knew that I had, you know, my eye on February to rent a, a little condo and my wife and daughter love the beach and, you know, I love golf. And if you love golf, you, you're going to love Seminole. And um, I just was able to take that month off of work at Seminole and was, you know, I'll probably never get a month like that again in my life. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You told me about that. I was like, this guy is just, he's just winning. He's just winning at everything <laughs> right now. Um, so speaking of winning, you go to spend your first year 
at Seminole. And, and as a member, to, to uh, as I understand it, you are expected to play in, you know, the, the member guests and the member member and the, the um, you know, club championship. And then, of course, the pro member, which, as many people know, is this Monday, uh, this event, the, the Monday after the Honda, when all the PGA Tour players are in town. And then a lot of them come down and come in town anyway, where you have, you know, Freddie Couples and Jack Nicholas, and obviously this is throughout the years, and Palmer and Dustin Johnson and just, you know, Ricky Fowler, Justin Rose. We can go on and on and on, but they're all there to play in this pro member. I mean, the, the field is is insane. And you're paired with Joseph Bramlett, and your first year as a member at Seminole, you decide to shoot 63 and win the pro member. Um, so, uh, going in and doing that and just being there, uh, I'm guessing the nerves were, were, were pretty high for you and you've played in some serious, uh, you know, events, you've played in USG events and, um, what were the nerves like playing that for the first time? You know, it's pretty, uh, certainly nerve wracking. You look around and, you know, it's, you see the guys that, uh, that you see on TV all the time and, you know, you see them in person and, you know, it's a little bit surreal, but to be honest for me, you know, I'm as much a fan of amateur golf, if not more than professional golf. So just even walking into Seminole on a regular day and, you know, the kind of guys they have there, you know, you've had Vinnie Giles on, on the podcast and Bob Ford for these Seminole sessions. I mean, just legends in golf and, um, you know, the Buddy Marucci's and Spider Miller's Mike McCoy's, you know, I mean, you can just keep going Alan Fidel, yeah. you know, they're just, you know, I walk in and I'm, pretty much in as all much all of them as I am any of the pros but you know that that day this the pro member kind of I was you know playing a practice round the day before and I was on the putting green in the morning and I was the only one on the putting green and then I just felt a presence of someone else walking onto the green I turned around it was Ernie Els just oh geez you know man I better and he's a big guy too yeah. so I, I said I better stay out of his way you know he's a really important guy and then I feel kind of another presence and it's Brandon Grace and they're playing a practice round. And I just thought, geez, I better just pick up my balls and leave, <laughs> like leave this to them. And then, you know, I realized, Hey, I'm, I remember I'm here. Yeah. And I'm playing in the tournament too. I need yeah. to practice. I need to prepare. You know, I have a partner that is depending on me, although he didn't need much of my help to be honest, but going to the actual tournament day, uh, you mentioned I was paired with Joseph Bramlett. Uh, one of the neat things about the pro member is that you're not paired up you actually invite your pro. And so a lot of the, the partnerships are come from existing uh, relationships that members have with pros. And I first met Joseph Bramlett back in 2006. Uh, he was a senior in high school about to go to Stanford. I had just moved to California for work the, uh, the year before and was still uh, kind of getting into the amateur golf uh, scene out there. Uh, and we were, paired together in the final round, the final group in the final round of the of a local event uh, called the Santa Clara County, really good local tournament. Uh, and we were playing well. We were tied with nine holes to go. And he birdied uh, seven out of the last nine holes on me and, and you know, ended up lapping the field, setting a new tournament record. It was, it was the most impressive thing I'd ever seen on a golf course. And uh, fast forward to, to this year when I reached out to him and I, I asked him if he'd be willing to play as my partner and the pro member and, and he was thrilled and, uh, couldn't wait. And I said, uh, I said, listen, I still have nightmares about that day, uh, at the county back in 2006. Uh, you know, I'd love to see a repeat of that. 
uh, but this time just be your partner. And, and he said, Oh, of course, that, that'd be great. What a fun day that was. And love to do that again. And, um, when you know it, he shoots seven under 29 on the back nine in the pro member at Seminole, um, to, to lead us to victory. I mean, he just, he did the repeat, like he said. And, um, uh, just, just remarkable. I mean, we were on the, on the 14th fairway and we were only four under for the day at that point, And I wasn't playing that great. I only helped him two shots all day. Uh, and he, uh, he says to me, what do you think it'll take to win? And I said, you know, I don't know, probably eight or nine under depends on the wind this afternoon. And, and I'm thinking, you know, Hey, this has been a great day. Let's, let's enjoy the, the rest of the round. And he's thinking, how do we win? And he says to me, uh, let's go on a run. And that's exactly what he did. He chipped in for Eagle on 14. He knocked it on in two and 15 made birdie, hit a close 16 made birdie. We both parred 17. And then on 18, his birdie putt fell in on the last revolution. And, and that was the difference for that, that 63. We won by one and, um, just a great guy, Joseph. He, uh, He's battled a bunch of injuries while at Stanford and out on tour with his back and he had to completely rebuild his swing. He told me he went four and a half years, uh, without being able to play without pain. And you'll never hear a complaint out of him. All he, all he talks about is how grateful he is to have a career and playing again. And so thankful for all the people like his swing coach that helped him get back to where he is. Um, he's just shown so much determination, so much work ethic. Uh, really deserves to be back there. He's a great talent and a great guy. Everybody uh, should be rooting for Joseph Bramlett. And you mentioned these amazing people, and it seems almost like every single round that someone would play at Seminole has to have a story, has to involve someone very special in the game. You told me a story a while back about this one random round at Seminole you played. Share that story if you don't mind. Yeah, so uh, actually the January before in 2020 uh, I was playing in the national senior junior event that a uh, uh, great man, John Birmingham who recently passed away, seven member who had run it for years. And I was playing with Alan Fidel as my partner. And after the last day we're driving home and he's going to drop me off. And he says, Hey, uh, you know, you want to play Seminole tomorrow? Of course. And I count, you know, uh, I can't think of anything I'd rather do than play Seminole any day of my life. But yeah. um he said, okay, we're going to play with Jimmy Dunn and Bob Ford. <laughs> and I, I all of a sudden thought, well, geez, I don't, maybe I don't, maybe I don't want to play Seminole tomorrow, you know? Uh, and we're talking about Alan Fidel is, you know, I've gotten to know him really well. Great, great man, done a lot for golf with the concession company and my golf alliance. Um, and anyway, his home state in Ohio. And um, so I've gotten to know him. So I'm comfortable on that around Alan, despite all that he's accomplished. And, um, you know, and I've been around Bob Ford a little bit and Jimmy Dunn a little bit. But I've never played with either of them. Um, and it's just kind of a daunting nerve wracking kind of thing for me, at least the way I approach these kinds of things. Maybe I shouldn't be, but, uh, you know, so the next day we're driving in and it's, you know, blowing 30 or 40 miles an hour, just really blowing hard. And, uh, my wife is dropping me off and she's like, Oh, it's windy. You know, you love to play in the wind. You know, this is good for you. You know, <laughs> uh, I'm just sort of laughing like, who knows? Man? I guess <laughs> if I play bad, at least I, uh, I don't look like a, a fool entirely because of myself and you know, I get the wind to blame a little bit. Um, but we get out there and, uh, you know, Jimmy, who uh, is a hell of a player and yeah. you know, works hard at his game and, you know, he doesn't need any strokes from anybody, no, no. Uh, but he's, you know, as you know, all he's accomplished in life, you know, he's certainly a good negotiator. Um, so he, he picks me as his partner and uh, he negotiates two strokes aside. Um, and so we get going and I'm, you know, 
I'm probably as nervous as I am any round that I would play in the Coleman or any other event. And really for no reason, just a bunch of great guys enjoying a great, great day of golf. But um, I go out there and, you know, the wind's, wind's blowing like crazy. And somehow I hit this, hit this spot on the first hole from 30 feet and it goes in, and, you know, Jimmy and I get one up and, uh, you know, then we keep going and, and we get to the third hole and, you know, I think Bob and Alan both had probably five or six footers for par and miss them. And we get up on the next tee and, you know, Jimmy Dunn's standing over his tee ball on four and he stops and he, he backs off and he looks at me and he says, you know, Andrew, that third hole, you know, that's a, that's a really challenging par five. Uh-huh. And I said, yeah. You know, it's, it's one of the greatest par fives in in the world. You know, I'm, you know, talking to the club president here and, you know, and he goes, I didn't really figure out Jimmy yet and what he was doing. And he, he goes, uh, you know, a lot of people make bogey on that par five. <laughs> and then he looks at me and he goes, but not you and me, we made par uh-huh. those guys, those guys <laughs> made bogey. And I'm just in shock. <laughs> uh, and I look over and Bob and Alan are just shaking their heads and smirking. Cause they, they know they, they've been played with him before. And honestly, I don't think there's anyone that has more fun playing golf than me done. And, yeah. uh, you know, the way he needles and the way he, you know, pushes and it's in the competition. It's just, it's, it's just a joy to play with him. It's a lot of fun. And, you know, we ended up playing great that day. You know, he got those shots and I, I think I birdied the ninth hole to put a seven up through nine holes. Um, and I don't know if Bob and Alan were being nice trying to make Jimmy like me or something, but we walked off and, and Jimmy said, you know, this, this wind is crazy. Uh, let's go in for lunch. These guys aren't going to come back anyway. And we went and had a great lunch. It was a, uh, a good day. That's great. That's such a great story. Yeah, I I've not had the the privilege of play with uh with Jimmy or Alan or Bob yet, but that's uh gosh, that sounds like a lot of fun. And as someone just kind of as as I would say, kind of an initiation, that sounds uh that sounds like a great way to learn about the culture at Seminole to play with those guys. Mm-hmm. I know it's a golf club, but it sounds to me that Seminole is not just about the golf; it's about the people. Yeah. So I mean, Seminole, I think. It's, it's a world-class golf course and, uh, you know, we'll see that all this weekend in the Walker cup and, you know, anyone uh, that gets a chance to go there should. But I think for me, uh, what really separates Seminole from a lot of the other places I've been is the people. Um, and, you know, not just the members, obviously the members are the highest golf IQ people I've been around and, you know, great passion for the game and their accomplishments, what they've given back to the game. Um, but, you know, Really, uh, the professional staff, you know, Bob Ford, Matt Cahill, and you know all all their staff, uh, the the caddies. It's, I mean, the the, the quality of the caddies, uh, the you know the level of play, the level of understanding of the game. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just the best you know group of caddies in the world. Uh, and you could say the same thing in every aspect of Seminole. Really, if you if you took that group of people, you know, members, staff, uh, caddies, everywhere, uh, and uh, that golf culture and, and the culture with the skins games and, you know, uh, the love of the game and, and everyone being serious and working on their game. And, and, you know, even though Seminole is one of the best golf courses in the world, if you took that group of people and put them on the worst golf course in the world, that's, that's probably still the golf course I'd want to play every day with that group of people. So it couldn't be more special for me to be a part of it. Well, we, um, we have a great, uh, we have a great event, uh, heading our way in the next few days, uh, at Seminole, the, uh, the Walker cup matches. And not only are you, uh, you know, a member of the club and get to appreciate the, the Walker cup in that regard, but you're, uh, you're going to be working a little bit. I mean, they, they're going to put you to work. So you are going to be, I believe on the rules committee, 
for for the Walker Cup. And I thought I'd ask you maybe if you can share a story about about maybe some match play rules that you know I know you've done stuff with the U.S. Junior. You've been at numerous uh, different uh, USG events. So you're no stranger to not only just the typical rules uh, questions that you may get from players, but maybe also some rules issues that have come about that you would only see in match play. And I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but is there anything you could think of that maybe you can share with listeners to kind of keep, you know, keep their eyes open for, or just things that they should understand about match play? Yeah, that's interesting. I did have really an interesting one at the U S four ball um, back in 2017 at Piners. That's, you know, match play specific rule. And, uh, I was referring a match uh, between Patrick Kristovich and Garrett Rank, who you've both had on the podcast. Great players, great guys. Uh, and they were playing Akshay Batya and uh, Grayson Watnowski. And, you know, two really good young players from North Carolina. And they were having a really tight match. And throughout the match, you know, a number of times, Grayson would have putts uh, inside Akshay on a similar line. And he would kind of line up and kind of quickly try to hit the putt as you know, uh, before anyone would have a chance to concede the putt so that he could show the line. And, you know, Garrett being a, you know, uh, you know veteran competitor that he is, sure. uh, caught, on, caught on to this. And he started conceding those putts when that situation happened. And no gamesmanship, no problems, you know, everything everyone was doing within the rules. And I just, I started getting a chuckle out of it. I think on the, uh, probably the 15th, oh, well, that part three there, at Piners number two, uh, there was about a five footer and he, uh, he very quickly, uh, Garrett says, that's good. That's good. You can't hit that putt. That's good. <laughs> and so great. Grayson sort of, Oh, you know, he wanted to give Akshay the line. He picks up. So we get to the 18th hole and Patrick and Garrett are one up and, uh, Akshay is at the back of the green. Uh, and Grayson is, uh, and he missed the green and chipped up. He had a long par putt and they need to win the hole. And he, uh, wasn't away. He was on Akshay's line again. And in the middle of his backstroke, uh, you know, he had kind of gotten in there without really uh, much attention uh, to hit the putt. And in the middle of the stroke, Garrett says, you know, oh, that's good. Uh, and it was kind of hard to tell when the stroke could happen. Garrett, you know, great sensor was already hitting the putt. Uh, and it was kind of a little unsure what should happen. I mean, in that situation, if a putt is conceded, and you put it anyway, then your partner is disqualified for the hole. So that's an interesting match play rule that 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 comes up as a you know part of trying to prevent them from helping their partner in that situation. Right. But because the concession came in when it did quite late, everyone was kind of looking around. Did that concession count? Did it not count? And I was standing out to the side of the green, and Patrick Kristovich turns around and he looks at me. He goes, well, "What do we do there?" <laughs> and I said, "You know, I don't know when that." The concession was made relative, you know, the stroke is the forward movement of the club with the intent to hit the ball. So did he concede it on the way back, on the way through? So I'm getting on the radio and trying to get some staff members who really know how to deal with these situations over to, to kind of help kind of clarify. And then, you know, Garrett said, no, 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 don't worry about it. I was, you know, I was late on that. Just, you know, let's just keep playing, keep playing. So they went ahead, they went ahead and kept playing. Um, so we never did actually have to give a ruling. They ended up winning the match one up. They had the whole um, but that is an interesting one with match play where, you know, if you hit, uh, if someone concedes a putt uh, and it's going to help your partner, you can't hit it. And if you do, the opponent is disqualified. Right, right. For the yeah. whole. For the whole. When, when did you start getting uh, interested in rules? Because, you know, most of us, I mean, I'm, I'm guilty. I mean, I, I probably have a, you know, barely passing grade when it comes to understanding the rules. And you, you even see professionals 
calling over for rules officials uh, quite often on the PGA Tour. I know there's a lot of money involved in that. That falls into it as well. But, you know, as I said earlier, you've been a rules official for, you know, Northern California Golf Association, you're the rules committee um, for the USGA. When did you start, you know, gaining an interest in the rules where you wanted to have that be, uh, you know, part of your relationship with the game? Yeah, it's a great question. So my my interest in the rules uh, really was sparked by my dad. I mean, my dad was a professor, and anytime you asked him a question, he never just gave you the answer. He went in, whether it was a homework question, he pulled out Encyclopedia Britannica and, you know, showed you how to look it up yourself. But anytime the golf questions would come up in the rulings, he would pull out, you know, at the time it was the decisions book. Yeah. Um, and I, I really enjoyed that. You know, the decisions book back then, the way it's written, the way it was written was, you know, in a question, question and answer form. So, you know, you read the question and then you try to guess the answer. So it was kind of like a, a quiz. And uh, I just thought it was a fun thing to do. And, you know, I never got too into it, but that kind of sparked my interest. And, um, you know, and then as I started to play some mid amateur golf, I had the opportunity to meet some folks that had uh, served on the USGA executive committee or, you know, other local golf association committees and talk to them about their experiences doing that, whether it was uh, as an official or in other aspects on committees. And, you know, it just sounded really so much fun to be a part of the game uh, that way and to, uh, you know, be engaged just beyond being a player, uh, you know, to uh, have a look at kind of how tournaments were run, you know, how teams are selected, how, uh, you know, what, what sort of issues golf associations struggle with and trying to like, you know, provide more for, you know, the local area. So uh, I just got interested to it. And all of them basically told me the best thing to do is to get involved with your local golf association. And so that's when I got involved with the Northern California golf association. Uh, and they have a tremendous rules education program in uh, Northern California. And uh, I, you know, I went to a rules workshop thinking this is going to be great. I'm going to know how to, uh, give every ruling and I'm going to know how to <laughs> give, you know, solve every problem uh, that comes up when I'm playing. And I don't think I've ever left uh, anything more afraid of my life uh, <laughs> after doing that. I mean, I just, oh my gosh, the, the complexity of the rules and the yeah. amount that you have to know. And um, so, you know, it just, that kind of just started the interest and I, I kept going back for a couple of years and, you know, the folks at the NCGA and, and helping out with the junior tour, they really mentored me and helped me uh, learn the rules and, and understand about tournament administration. And uh, that led to me getting involved with the USGA, you know, with the US junior committee and getting to do a lot of these really cool things. It's just uh, really a treat to, to get to be around championship golf at this level and the kinds of people in the game. And, you know, the people I've met playing, uh, are fantastic. The people I've met officiating are fantastic. I mean, in this game, we just have such a great group of people, you know, on, on both sides that care so much about the game. They, you know, get so much out of the game and, and they give back so much to the game. It's just really, really neat. You, um, you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the U S junior and, you know, as I have said many, many times on this podcast, anytime we can tie something in for, for juniors to learn about, or even, you know, parents of juniors to learn about, I always like to do it. Um, is, can you think of maybe one of the biggest issues you see on the junior side that perhaps, you know, kids, parents should kind of keep in mind as far as, far as the rules? I mean, you know, that's kind of a, a, a very broad question, but is there something that, that kids can do so they can be more confident in the rules of golf when they're playing 
you know, they could be confident that they're they're in compliance. They're not going to get a DQ. They're not going to do anything that's going to, you know, unfortunately uh, affect a, a score in a tournament round or even just a casual round with friends. Is there anything that you can think of that the juniors could kind of pay more attention to? Yeah, not I mean, not specific rules, but I, I do think uh, there's the, the most maybe approachable way to start getting comfortable with the rules is, at least in my opinion, you know, the USGA and the RNA both have great uh, resources on their website. On the USJ website, there's the rules education section, which has rules of golf explained videos. And these are just short one to two minute videos. And they really uh, upgraded these in the last rules revision for 2019. And, you know, they have, uh, you know, in graphics overlaid to show the way relief is taken. Sure. They go through most of the basics. And, uh, you know, I think those, uh, those videos really help put a picture and see someone going through the process. Um, you know, some of our best rules workshops that, that we do are on course ones. Cause you, it, it really sinks in more when you see it and you're doing it more so than reading a bunch of texts. Right, um, right. And so I, I will say, you know, go watch those videos and I'll, you know, if you watch a few a day, you know, just a couple minutes of time, uh, a couple minutes each, each video. And, uh, and then there's also rules quizzes. I, I, I enjoy the kind of quiz aspect, you know, I learn more and study more that way where you try and answer a question and you see if you got it right or wrong. And it, um, you know, I think that sticks in your mind more, but, uh, yeah, I'd recommend watching those videos and, uh, the vast majority of situations that will, that kids or, you know, all people run into playing the game are, you know, around relief, um, around dropping right. around, you know, conditions you know affecting the stroke and so uh you know they have really good simple explanations of those things and if you really get comfortable and confident with those you're only going to need to hold up play to call in a rules official you know for the really strange cases uh, or, or the less common cases i'd say sure no that's 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 very well said i think uh, i think everyone playing golf could use a a brush up on the rules every once in a while so i think that uh, that's great advice you mentioned back to Seminole. You mentioned the Coleman. You know, one of the the greatest mid amateur and senior amateur tournaments uh, in the country. I mean, it's right up there. It's, you know, it's really the triple crown, so to speak. I guess you can say, you know, Coleman, Crump, and Thomas. Uh, you know, Seminole and Pine Valley and, and LACC. Uh, you played in it. I know you played it a handful of times. Had a really good, solid finish. I believe you're like, you know, T fifteen somewhere in that neighborhood in 2017. And you know, for the uninitiated you look at the scores of the Coleman every year and you rarely see anyone really lighting, lighting it up. And, you know, if you could stay around par, you're in pretty good shape. And even the best, you know, I've seen USGA champions and, and, you know, Crump cup winners and, and I've seen just big numbers and people are going to be watching Seminole on TV this weekend for, you know, possibly the very first time people are going to be in attendance for the tournament for the very first time. And, you know, it looks flat and inviting, and you can see you can see across the whole property, but Seminole can really just reach up and grab you. And for, like I said, for people watching it for the first time, what are some of the things that maybe you've experienced or that you're going to see the top amateurs in the world they're going to have problems with? I think Seminole is probably the most exacting golf course uh, in terms of approach shots and you know in and around the greens of, of anywhere I've been, and I think. Uh, it's maybe not as apparent at first. And I think you need to to play the course and, and hit some shots that you think at most courses would turn out okay, but you maybe caught it a groove low. And, you know, at Seminole, the greens know when you catch it a groove low and they don't spin and they catch a ridge and they run off and they funnel into a bunker. 
Um, and if you get above the hole and you have a fast putt, you know, the greens at those speeds and, you know, guys at the Coleman often talk about, you know, oh, I had a great day. I didn't putt off a green today kind <laughs> of situation. Go. So, um, yeah, no, it really, it, it, it forces you to be much more exact. And then when the wind comes up, I mean, you really, uh, you really have to control your trajectory, control your shot shape to be able to hold the greens. Uh, because if you got the wind, you know, 17 is a great example. Uh, you know, the wind off the ocean, it's par three and the, and the green slope to the right, uh, you know, and the wind's coming off the ocean uh, to, you know, to the right from, from where you're teeing off as well. You know, if you just ride the wind, you could hit the most beautiful shot that lands on the left edge of the green, but it's going to take a nice hard bounce on those firm greens and it's, it's going to just run right off into those bunkers. Um, so, you know, you really have to be able to flight your ball and control, hit that draw into that green to hold that green. And there's a lot of holes like that. And one of the beauties about Seminoles, as, you know, as it's routed, you're, you're hitting different winds from different angles, you have different holes with different green contours. And, you know, you go through there with a the two club wind and you're going to need to hit every trajectory, every shot shape, if you really want to be able to score well. And these guys, you know, these Walker Cuppers are the best amateurs in the world and they can do it. So it's going to be exciting to watch. Um, but, you know, even them, they're not going to do it every time. And so they're going to need really strong short games. You know, bunker game is, is thoroughly important at Seminole. You know, uh, the short grass around the greens, the very tight lies, it, you know, takes a lot of really good technique, but it takes even more nerve sure. uh, to really just execute a great shot off those tight lies. And so uh, to me, I think that's where kind of, when you get the course and the condition that it's in, I played the other day and Matt K. Hiller, our uh, incoming head pro, um, said, you know, it's starting to get like the Coleman. And so oh, talking boy. about the Walker Cup and it's getting like the Coleman, oh, boy. you know, we're, we're in for a treat and oh, yeah. uh, the players are in for a real test and it's it would be perfect for match play too. Uh, it's great. That's awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I will, I will get you out of here on this final question. I know you're as, as we've talked about the entire uh, our entire conversation here on the seminal sessions. This is uh, you're such a big proponent of amateur golf. It's just such a great passion in your life. How how big can this weekend be for amateur golf? Not just for the the, the ten guys on each side, not just for Seminole, but uh, to have a Walker Cup televised. How big can this weekend be for for amateur golf? Yeah, I think the Walker Cup is the greatest event in golf. You know, I. I... Uh, I'm a, I think this year with, with COVID and there's significant restrictions and reduced attendance, um, it's a little bit uh, less than, than, than most Walker Cups. But when you go to a Walker Cup in most years, either side, you, you see a lot of the same people. I've run into more friends from the UK at Walker Cups that I've attended as a spectator in the past uh, than, than you can imagine. Uh, and it's really a place where not just for the players – uh, which of course it's the pinnacle of, of amateur golf uh, and that achievement and the passion that they're going to play with. I mean, it's something that they'll treasure like Jason Gore with his bag forever. Yeah. Um, but for the RNA and the USGA and all the people that have played in Walker cups and all the people that just love amateur golf and, and all the committee people that care about the game. I mean, typically in a Walker cup, there's you know tons of meetings and discussions and, you know, there's so much to learn, I think from, you know, if you're, you know, from the U S and you're, you're interacting with folks from Great Britain and Ireland and vice versa. I think we have so much to learn from each other in the way the game is played, the way the golf culture is, the golf maintenance practices, the issues affecting the rules and events like the Walker cup, bring all these people together to celebrate amateur golf, celebrate the game of golf 
and to really forge these relationships and, and help us work together uh, to make the game even better in the future. So uh, to me, that the Walker Cup is, is more than just the competition. It's about celebrating the game, celebrating our great relationships, um, uh, and, and continuing to connect and, and stay connected uh, to each other. And that's, you know, that's how it was started in, in the day, uh, in, the, in the beginning. That was the intent. And it's, it's great to see it still going strong. Well, Andrew, I, I can't thank you enough uh, for someone that uh, didn't think that they uh, belonged as a guest, just as they were just a listener. Uh, I got to thank you because you brought a lot of insight into uh, into the Walker Cup and amateur golf, and it's great to hear about your history and, and how passionate you are about this game. Um, good luck this weekend. Hopefully it's just, uh, you know, drops from sprinkler heads and uh, and maybe, you know, a little lateral or, or you know, lateral water hazard kind of relief. Maybe hopefully it's that simple for you and everyone there. And, uh, <laughs> and I'll see you at Seminole. Thank you so much for being a guest at the back of the range. Thanks, man. And, and thanks for all you're doing. You do a great job and it's just a treat. I uh, can't wait to listen to more of your podcasts in the future. And there you have it. Special thanks to Andrew Bigadike for being a guest here at the back of the range, bringing the Seminole sessions to a close. Don't forget, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Everything you need to know about this podcast can be found at thebackoftherange.com. Enjoy the Walker Cup, and we'll see you next time here at the Back of the Range.